Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley, this review is going to get messy because Iris tricked me. (laughs) I tricked you, huh? I tricked you into watching a movie from 2021. Tick, tick, boom. Before when you would make recommendations, because once upon a time you recommended Hamilton and I was like, I'm not doing that, dude. That thing is three hours. I already saw it at the Pantages. I'm not reviewing it. And so tick, tick, boom. I knew that Andrew Garfield was sitting in front of a piano and I was like, tick, tick, boom. And then I heard directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and I was like, why would that induce a response? It's just been kind of an overload with In the Heights, which I didn't see, and Moana and tick, tick, boom and Vivo and. Encanto. Miranda fatigue? It's just a lot. And so I feel like you tricked me into this one knowing my outright disdain for most modern musicals. And I was prepared for a musical, but I didn't know that it was about the dude who did Rent. Would that have changed your mind? I am not a fan of Rent. Why not? Uh, I get that this is a failing on my part. A lot of people love Rent. And I'm not saying that they are wrong necessarily. It's more likely that I am wrong. But as personal preference goes, Rent is not my deal. Hmm. I have a question for you. How do we measure a year? How, in in so 365,600 minutes or whatever the hell? <laughs> so you are at least familiar with the music. Can't get away from it. Chris Columbus did the movie, like, what, 15 years ago? And I saw that at one point and said, I'm never watching that again. It's not that I just decided I hate musicals. Some musicals, Rent in particular, drove me to this state of mind. While 525,600 minutes is a perfunctory answer, the correct answer is love. Maybe you watch these things, but you just don't quite get them. Maybe I don't get them because I do understand the theme of love. What I don't understand is how Jonathan Larson's focus on minutiae and irrelevant things makes for good musicals. (laughs) Well, Rent, largely based on La Boheme, was a revolutionary type musical. 
that redefined what musicals could be and who they could focus on, what they could talk about, even if it is the minutia of life. In the middle of the AIDS crisis and queer representation and all that good stuff, yay. Tick, tick, boom, it appropriately mirrors my issue with Rent. Just because it's true, just because this person struggled and then died right before he tasted the success and he was focused on his youth and his, you know, impending mortality, although it came sooner than he expected that it would, doesn't make it good. I thought that you would really relate to Jonathan Larson's preoccupation with youth and time and aging and that you would find a kindred spirit in that. The distinction being I don't think my life is musically noteworthy. Do you think it's narratively noteworthy? I've long said that if I really put my mind to it, I could write a country album. I could write a rap album. I would have to do some research, but it's not a magical thing. I could write Rent. Not Rent exactly, because those are his themes and not my themes. I could have written Tick, Tick, Boom or Superbia or whatever, but I don't because I think, oh, that sucks. And so I don't do it. Well... And maybe Jonathan Larson lacks this doubt. It seems like all of Andrew Garfield's concern in this movie wasn't that he wasn't good enough, but that he had to hit certain markers before he turned a certain age. Gershwin and Sondheim and all these people, they did this and this and this by this time. I certainly feel that. But he never once questioned if what he was writing about was worthy of inclusion in these musicals. Well pretty subjective thing what's worthy of being explored in a narrative construct um you know this is one of those like fundamental philosophical differences that we have i mean yes you could do these things in theory but really when it comes down to it like you know the idea or the thought that you could do it is nothing without the execution and the actual doing of it and the actual doing of it takes time which is something that is a limited supply and so we have to choose carefully what it is that we do spend our time on. And the operative word here being carefully. But we only have a limited amount of time. And he spent eight years toiling in his apartment. And his roommate criticized him for you know performing a musical in his apartment. And he drove away his girlfriend, didn't pay his bills. And he faced the potential loss of his friend through AIDS. And then ironically died himself before he got to see the first preview of Rent. Tragedy. Yeah, aortic aneurysm. That's really random and tragic. But again, I don't have any problem with Jonathan Larson, but I want to focus on Tick, Tick, Boom as a movie executed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and not justifying this person's life. So did you know what this was about? Yes, like I knew what The Master was about. P.T. Anderson's right. The Master. And then uh, L. Ron Hubbard never showed up. <laughs> exactly. I was like, so when does he write Rent? And he never right. writes Rent. So I didn't even know that. And so when it started, Kelly was like, oh, it's this one. It's about Rent. And I was like, oh, man. So a lot of my notes that I took got invalidated as the movie went on. The first thing I did was... This narrative and how it's being constructed, did he perform his life story in front of an audience? Sure seemed like it. Without knowing that Tick, Tick, Boom exists as a musical, I was like, what are they doing? Is he musically <laughs> narrating his own life? <laughs> like, is this a fantasy? Because mm. if he didn't actually perform these songs in front of an audience, it's kind of a cheat. It's, it's lazy exposition. Mm -hmm. In the same way that if this movie relies on a knowledge of Rent, 
it's invalid. Kelly was like, oh, this one kind of sounded like Ranton. You could see where this one came from Ranton. I was like, those homages, that's not enough. You're going to have to sell me on this movie on its own merits. That makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. The only homage that I got was Wrong as Rain. Yeah, in that little side graphic thing or like a close-up thing. So I was like, is this a fantasy? Like it's so romanticized. Mm. And oh, the impromptu song in the apartment. So they presented some of the musical numbers in Tick, Tick, Boom as impromptu songs right? That they would burst into song. Like at the party. And not knowing that those songs were part of any musical because I'd never heard of Tick, Tick, Boom in my life. I was like, why are they doing this? It's like they were sneaking a musical in multiple formats. Do they break into song because it's supposed to be a part of the dramatic narrative? Is it a performance that they're singing to an audience and he's playing to an audience? Is it both? Is it like this mixed media of musicals? <laughs> you had the opposite reaction of the finance party goer. Um, yeah. You know, who shows up? Who inexplicably was like, this is awesome, bro. <laughs> Yeah, he was just like surprised and delighted and rolling with it. And you're like, what is happening? It's not like that was a real person because none of this was real because of the fourth wall breaks, because they did everything I hate. For the same reason I disliked La La Land. Do you remember around 10 years ago, Kira Knightley did the Anna Karenina movie? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that was a musical, though. It wasn't a musical. The point that I'm saying, she would go into a courtroom or, or uh, to meet with a lawyer or whatever the case was. And in switching scenes, they would have stagehands come in and push a wall out of the way and push a different wall in and drapes would drop down. It was very much a stagecraft presentation mimicking style for a movie transition. And what that does is breaks any illusion of reality any semblance of dramatic narrative that propels us along and makes us believe the story, it's like, oh, right, this is all artificial. But working that stagecraft into the movie really hurt it, I think, in the same way that a lot of these stopping down the dramatic narrative for him to be singing on a piano to an unseen audience, I couldn't buy any of it. I couldn't believe any of it was real because of its presentation. The whole time I was thinking about at what point was Lin-Manuel Miranda being inspired by Jonathan Chu or Damien Chazelle or even the choreography and direction from the uh, motion picture version of Rent. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he did see it when he was 17, which was well before the movie version. And that certainly had an impact on him. Oh, yeah. Very impressionable age. What I'm trying to say is that the presentation of this movie before it made sense that Tick, Tick, Boom was its own thing and that's what we were enacting, that all of these songs had a place in a musical, albeit one that didn't go anywhere, but simply preceded Rent. If you don't tell me these things and I don't know it, it's very confusing and frustrating for me. A lot of these more dreamy performances that happened in the void, including the overall narrative device of him performing Tick, Tick, Boom, all were kind of validated as having occurred with the audiences. They revealed the audience for Tick, Tick, Boom or whatever it was. Maybe it was the Tick, Tick, Boom workshop that was the driving device in the narrative. But by revealing Sondheim in the audience and and his best friend in the audience. Yes. Michael, by the way, for anyone curious, is still alive. Wow. And he only thought he had a year to, li to live. You're talking about real life, Michael. Right. Well, the Michael character, who is actually Matthew, I believe. Okay. Well, that's good. 
I mean, a lot of advances. Right. The levels of HIV in your blood are so low with the retroviral drugs or whatever that not only do they not show up on blood tests anymore, but even unprotected sex is not transmissible when the levels are undetected. Oh, wow. When I think about when the HIV crisis was kind of at its height, I always think about laying on the couch at night sobbing because of Magic Johnson that he was going to die. Were? Yeah. Wow. I was so upset, but he's still around. So had you seen Rent? Yes, I've seen Rent. I saw the movie, not on stage. I saw it on stage. Celia invited me to see it with her sister and Celia's friends. What up, chill? What up, chill? And I think it was one of my first musical experiences. And playing the lead role was none other than Doogie Howser. Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> We waited backstage afterward to get autographs on our playbills, and Doogie came out, and they were like, Doogie, Doogie, and he oh stopped God. and said, my name is not Doogie, and then turned back around and went inside. Poor Doogie. <laughs> Another reason I wanted to watch Tick, Tick, Boom was because I also saw The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and... Andrew Garfield was back on my radar. What does this next evolution of Andrew Garfield look like? Because he was an unlikely Spidey for me. He's always had really weird big hair. No more so than here. <laughs> right? You know, he did those kind of rando Scorsese and uh, Mel Gibson films. Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge, but he was also the lead in Ramin Barani's uh, 99 Homes, which I loved. Right, yeah, that was a good one. But what was the random Scorsese film that was like four hours long? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I forget. Silence. Silence, okay. Well, I do know that Lin-Manuel Miranda sought him out directly, liked him, and was so enraptured by him, and wanted him to play Jonathan Larson that he didn't even know if he could sing when he went after him. I think he's great. I think he would be perfect. He's amazing. Just, do you think he sings? <laughs> and to that end, apparently Andrew Garfield, upon accepting this role, went through an intensive thing. I don't know if the stuff that you saw he sang in, but he dedicated like a year of serious voice training because he couldn't sing. I'm sure, I mean, maybe he could carry a tune or do basic stuff like you or I can, but to be able to, to sing Jonathan Larson's entire life story in, you know, a dozen musical numbers or something, he put in a lot of work it's all him i don't know if it's all him i didn't do this depth of research on this movie but i do know in the impromptu apartment song it was him and that's you know when it, when you start singing when you're bringing the party together and start singing acapella and hoping that people will magically know the words and join in on the chorus <laughs> that's a hard thing to do it is this whole thing was a pretty hard thing to do we took it all we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So much of the burden is on the actor to make it feel plausible and not cheesy. And I think he succeeded in that. Andrew Garfield was great. I think that he represented really well and worked really hard and was believable. I like Andrew Garfield very much more and more with every role I see where he kind of throws himself in. I don't think he's to be discounted. I think in the same way that Robert Pattinson did all the Twilight stuff and people are like, oh, he's that vampire. Andrew Garfield was kind of Spider-Man, but then he, you know, did all kinds of weird random stuff. 
And the fact that he's in interviews and I'm like, oh, yeah, that dude is British blows my mind. Oh, wait, Andrew Garfield's British. I forgot. Yes. And so his ability to play American and then to stretch for all these roles, I think he's he's really solid. It's got to be kind of hard for male actors to transition from like young cuties into leading men. Just like it's probably really hard for women to transition from ingenue to it seems like they just jump straight to grandma roles. <laughs> Speaking of jumping to a grandma role or a grandpa role, I know what uh, Bradley Whitford looks like, and I still didn't recognize him as Stephen Sondheim for like 10 minutes. <laughs> How do you know Bradley Whitford? I mean, for me, it was he was in Get Out recently where he, I guess he looked kind of old, but he wasn't bearded professor old, Stephen Sondheim old. And then probably the biggest thing that I know him for, because I didn't really watch The West Wing, was Cabin in the Woods. But, you know, he's been around for so long and he's really sharp and clever and he's a character actor that you're like, oh, look, it's him. But I didn't recognize him until he starts talking. And then you're like, oh, right. Wow. That beard really ages him. Hmm. The Sondheim thing was an interesting device. I mean, I, I'm assuming all of those interactions with Sondheim were true and that maybe he, maybe Jonathan Larson even became somewhat of a, a mentee toward the musical legend. But there was one Sondheim reaction. I think it was in the workshop. He was never quite skeptical, but, you know, he's leaning back with the hand supporting the head thing. And then there was one yep. shot of him where he does this, like, eyebrow thing where he's like, mm, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> and I was like, come on. Seriously? Yeah. I mean, but this is what makes, uh, I'm sure, they dramatize his relationship with Sondheim, who was a proponent of Jonathan Larson's musicals. But he said in the movie, I think this musical knows exactly what it is. And that makes me believe that I don't know what it is. I'm no musical aficionado. And if Sondheim believes that this musical has potential, or at least has a market in the world of musicals of its ilk, that I'm so far removed from that concept, I don't recognize it. So I'm not going to I'm not going to say that I'm right. I'm going to say that I'm wrong and don't have a lot of interest in being right in this matter. Come at me, bro. Like the Sugar Song with uh, Ira Wurtzman, his original encourager. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. Yeah, he's making up a song about sugar. Oh, right. And in the diner. Then Ira says, "Why would you do that?" And I was like, why would you do that? Nothing in Tick, Tick, Boom felt real to me until the end. Until, I, oh, I get it. This narrative is Tick, Tick, Boom. Why is it called that? Because otherwise, anytime we were in the middle of serious scenes, I was just waiting for them to stop down and burst into song. Like when he pushed down the wall of the diner. That was kind of cool. I mean, a little theatrical, like a little bit of a stage device. Yeah, a little bit. This is like the understatement of the year. <laughs> And when I didn't understand when he was playing the piano where he's performing the musical, which I didn't know, to the audience and all his friends are like singing along with him and like occasionally dancing, I was like, it's like they're inside out characters in his mind as a narrative device. Just wait till the first COVID musical comes out. You're going to flock. Coming, right? You're going to fly. Of course it's coming. Unmasked. It's going to be called... My Corona. Do, 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 oh, do, man. Do. The scene that felt real to me was the phone conversation between him and Rosa, where she actually starts sounding like a real person for once. And yes. It was really nice to have a scene where, like, two people talk to each other and nobody's singing and there's no music. And I, w I felt a little overstimulated throughout this film. 
And that little scene between him and Rosa on the phone at, after the workshop, I was like, ah, oh, like I felt all this relief I didn't know for tension that I was holding throughout this entire film. I don't know that that's enough, dude. That's like saying, man, that hurricane was devastating. But I was so relieved when we hit the eye for that minute and I could breathe and it started back up again. I so I like that hurricane eye. No, that's not enough. I'm just saying there was some realness in there and, and it took that groundedness to help me realize just how kind of overstimulating this film was. And I and I'm kind of attributing it to Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut because that's what this is, right? Yes. You know, and first time directors tend to lack a little bit of confidence in their audience and it shows it reveals itself through their direction where they're trying too hard and working too hard to make sure we understand what's going on. And generally that comes through, that what you're saying comes through in tone. They try to stitch everything together so it feels seamless. Much harder, I believe, with a musical where narratives are happening, uh, coming from many different angles. It was so curious when things would work that I would note them for me. When I smiled and laughed once, I was like, well, I got to write that down. And that was when I laughed. The only time was, can you guess? Nope. Chubstitute. <laughs> Because otherwise, <laughs> that focus group scene was awful. That advertising pitch session or whatever, terrible. Very unrealistic. Exactly. The reactions were unrealistic. His outburst was unrealistic. The characters and how they would play off each other were unrealistic. And I thought that that was the worst scene in the movie mm. until the revelation scene in the pool. So I wrote down, nope, the pool song is the worst. The pool song? Why? So there are lots of songs in this movie. And I get that I'm basic and I require an ABAB rhyme scheme. Or maybe if I'm getting crazy, what about an ABBA rhyme scheme? But when there's a total, you can't just write things and put them to music and be like, ah, it's perfect. Especially without a rhyme scheme. When he's just like talking? It was like a flood of consciousness. But that's going to be a song. And I was like, that is the worst song I've ever heard. There was a song in there. I'm not sure if it was the same one. There was definitely a song that felt like he was just kind of talking. And I was like, I don't really hear a ton of melody in there. I will agree that sometimes it does feel like it's just talking. And then all of a sudden, one word out of the blue will just soar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now I'm in the pool. And you're like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> It's so frustrating for me. It's almost hard to elaborate. It's almost hard to get across how I felt about some of it. But I feel guilty. I feel bad. Jonathan Larson as a life is tragic and sad and I guess heroic. And he certainly opened doors for a lot of theater nerds and a lot of people lacking appropriate representation and good for him and good for Rent. Not for me. So the problem is, ordinarily, I would zone on the songs for musicals. But because I knew we were going to discuss it, I watched it really closely and thus suffered maybe a little bit more than I should. But just because it's not for me or I don't understand it, I didn't want to rip it apart. It was like Andy Kaufman. People know and love that dude who's not funny, really. I mean, they made a movie about him, too. But he's for a very specific kind of per, like the comedy sensibilities. It's almost anti-comedy. Andy Kaufman's comic sensibility is anti-comedy. He, he's not funny and he would get booed off stage and stuff. And he had characters that people would love, but he didn't want to do that. It was all this weird subversive stuff. And this movie did a lot of things that I dislike. But Jonathan Larson's place in the history of musical theater can't be denied. It's just 
I didn't get the joke. I didn't get this movie in a way that was supposed to make me feel the emotionality. It was really hard when Michael told him that he was HIV and he's crying out, is this real life? Is this real life? In the middle of a musical montage that felt fake to me because I couldn't get into the drama when he was singing it. Kelly's over there wiping her eyes and stuff. And I was like, I wish I cared more. And this music wasn't pulling me out of it. You were sitting there all sociopathically eyeing your fiance crying. I, I feel that way sometimes because the things that hit people right in the gut don't make a dent for me at all. And I felt bad, which ironically is not what sociopaths do. <laughs> so I think ultimately what it comes down for me, come at me, bro, is that movies have a very specific ability, a gift, a leeway, a charm. That enables us to believe that 24 frames a second is reality. We understand that we're sitting there watching a movie, but we get caught up in the drama and the narrative, the way it's presented. I mean, you remember the thing I said about uh, your nose being in view all the time, right. but you can't see it because your brain blocks it out? We've learned over 120 years to block out the fact that cameras suddenly switch positions, that things that are fantastical become this magic of a presumed reality, that movies allow us to enter a world that we couldn't possibly enter, things that we couldn't or maybe even shouldn't see, but come together in a beautiful poetic way that substitutes for a couple of hours a reality, a heightened reality, a fantastical one, but still makes us believe. And modern musicals, anyway, have never made me believe. Tick, tick, boom, and the weird presentation and prefacing it with he never lived to see Rent and it was so tragic. And then slightly adapting Tick, Tick, Boom as Lin-Manuel Miranda did to be a narrative positioning between superbia, which is always hard for me to say, and Rent would be a great presentation of the musical that he wrote. It doesn't make for a good movie, in my humble opinion. I think we're going into nope territory Tick, tick, nope. No, actually. And this is what drives me so crazy. I couldn't possibly stand to watch this movie again because I personally feel that Jonathan Larson's musical numbers, by and large, are total nonsense. They are minutiae. They are irrelevant. They're hardly melodic. Like, there's not a single thing in this movie that I can remember that would be catchy in the same way the songs in Encanto were. What was the melody or what was the hook for the apartment song? There was something. It was a drum beat and they would say... We don't talk about AIDS, no, no, <laughs> So whatever, no, it's no. all gone the second I hear it. Which, frankly, it was all gone the second I heard Hamilton, too. People are like, it's transcendent. And I gave it a shot, and I spent like $800. And we went, and I listened to the songs, and got nothing. The only benefit of Hamilton on Disney Plus would have been that I would be able to read the subtitles and understand what they were rapping about. However, people love Rent and people maybe will like some of these songs. Like Sondheim said, I think this musical knows what exactly what it is. And he should be proud. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda knows. I just don't get it. I feel like I'm on the outside being like, this music sucks. Just like I could say that Green Day or Foo Fighters don't move me when people think they're the best band in the world. Dave Grohl is awesome. I think he's an awesome dude. I wish he made better music. A sentiment I've shared before on this podcast. This musical wasn't for me. This movie wasn't for me. I like Andrew Garfield very much. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda might be a little bit uh, overplayed just at the moment, but I have to respect what he was trying to do. 
this movie, I, I have to give it a begrudging all right. <gasps> I just feel like it's nowhere near for me, but that doesn't make it a bad movie. I liked the characters in theory. I liked the dynamic of him and his girlfriend and him and his oldest friend from childhood. Mm. I liked the element of him coming up against his hero and Sondheim and how Sondheim or anybody entering the preview or whatever of his play or his presentation was less important than his random girlfriend coming when she sh showed up and was standing in the background. I don't know. Maybe this one will make people cry. I would have liked it more if it was about rent. Yeah, no, I would have liked it if it was less about Rent and more about his life without being told through song. I'll give it a good. And there you have it. That's our review on Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut based on the life of Jonathan Larson, a movie from 2021 available on Netflix now and forever. Tick, tick, boom. You got a surprising, all right from Wes and a good from Iris. Tick Tick Boom is the Felicity Jones of musicals. But musicals don't have weird mouths. It's not your personal preference, but people seem to love it and you're just like distracted by the bad mouth. <laughs> I guess I have a thing with mouths. Like you have a thing with haircuts and I have a thing with mouths. Andrew Garfield also has kind of a weird mouth. Yeah, whatever. Let us know what you think about Tick Tick Boom 818-835-0473 at or whatever movies or whatever movies at gmail.com because we love to hear from you, whether in song or just in simple conversation. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.